Really glad that you are here this morning. We have, uh, if I remember right, count today, we have four builds left. Is that right? Seems like. Oh, man. So uh, we actually have three. You have to watch your calendar carefully um, this month. We actually have three in April uh, because there's five Saturdays, I believe. So just think right now, if you normally think, well, we have two every month, you're going to miss one of them um, coming up. So just think every other Saturday right now, this Saturday, two Saturdays from now, and then again, there'll be one right at the end of April. So just watch your calendar carefully and watch for the emails that come out, and uh, you should be in good shape, I think. So. Is there only three? Oh, yeah, you're, yeah. there's three more. I, I was counting today. Counting today, there's four. So you're right. There's three more after today. We have uh, the next one will be on deacon qualifications. Today we're going to do elder qualifications. Next one will be on deacon qualifications, and then the last two will be on hermeneutics. So we are finishing up um, the last two disciplines here. So why don't we pray, and then we can um, jump right in. Do we have all the handouts back there? Yes, they are. Okay, just want to make sure. All of a sudden, I looked at a blank table, and I was like, "Uh uh-oh. But you've got it. All right, let's pray, guys. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for this morning, Lord. It is good for us to be together and to be able to open your word together and to draw near to you as men in the church. And I pray that, Lord, you would bless our pursuit of you today. We need help. Um, We ask that you would lead us um, more uh, deeply toward you, that our affections would be stirred because of our pursuit of you this morning through your word, and that, God, we would um, become men, increasingly men who love you more and desire to follow you, desire to obey you, and desire to lead our households well where you have us. So, God, please uh, bless our pursuit of you. And uh, I thank you for these men, Lord, and the encouragement that they are to me, to see them uh, make the sacrifice to get up and to bring food and to just care for each other. Lord, a discussion in our discussion groups is encouraging. And, and Lord, we just pray that you would bless our time together this morning. And we offer up our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the things that I want you to do today when you get into your discussion groups is I want you to, if you can, maybe first uh, take some time and, and pray for Scott Demarest and um, pray for his dad. And his mom. His mom uh, just had. They're they're elderly. They live in Denver, and his mom declined in health over the last week. Uh, they were supposed to actually come down here for Easter. His mom and dad, and they didn't because she declined in health so bad. And uh, she just had a pacemaker put in, and she's now bleeding internally in her chest. And um, so, both his parents are believers. They both love the Lord. But uh, so Sarah, Scott's wife, was up there all week taking care of both of them. And, and now Scott flew up uh, to be with them for another couple of days, perhaps another day or so. So what, what to pray for? I just asked Sarah. She's back. Um, if you can, maybe just a couple of you pray for them in your group. Here's a couple of things to pray for. Pray, obviously, for her recovery. Um, that's what they would like to see. But then also Scott and his uh, two sisters 
have, are all together in Denver, and they need to make some longer-term decisions for how to care for aging parents. And so you can pray for unity between you know, the, the siblings and dad primarily. Um, they found out that they've been receiving some, a lot of meals from neighbors and friends from church, and um, that the consensus around them is they need help. Um, so pray for wisdom in that um, and unity in all of that would be great. So if you lift them up, that would be great. Really some sweet things that, you know, Sarah shared that um, his mom has been very um, kind of in and out of, you know, what's, what's really going on and what's happening. And so there were times where Sarah would like just sing a hymn to her and she would immediately try to sing along so that the things that were... You know, that are spiritual, that are rooted in God's word and being a Christian, she immediately was engaged with those things. Um, so that's really sweet. Um, and there's something really, uh, I think the way that Sarah said it was, there's something really almost sacred about when you're on that ground at the end of life, perhaps, Lord willing, she'll have more years, but um, there's just something really sweet about that with a, a believer. So just pray for them to, for God to be glorified and for her to recover, and for unity in their decision-making. So when you guys break up in your discussion groups, you can pray for that. That would be great, a little bit. That would be a way that we could bless Scott and his family. Um, so let's talk one more time about your elder disciplines, or your elder disciplines, your uh, build disciplines on the back. We're going to be looking at the elder qualifications. And we're going to talk about it in regards to the qualifications. Um, I'll try to frame it maybe a couple different ways for you. <clears throat> As a man who's in the church, as a believing man, um, there's some things that you need to set, some disciplines you need to set right before you um, every day, every week, every month of your life. Um, one, obviously, the discipline in regards to your own heart and the Word of God. You, you want to be a disciplined man to get up to throughout your day, at the end of your day, Shepherd your heart with the word of God so that you might know God better, that you might love him um, more deeply, that you would fear him more reverently, that you would worship him, um, that you would enjoy him and delight in him more. That's, that takes discipline. That doesn't just happen, right? You don't just all of a sudden at the end of the day lay your head down to the pillow and go, man, how did that happen? I grew closer to the Lord today and I didn't even know it. No, you have to like labor at it. It's a relationship. It's like any other relationship. It takes discipline and practice and sacrifice to grow in that. And so you set that before you every day because that's really the fountain of everything in the Christian life is your pursuit of the Lord through his word and in prayer. Um, and and you, you set that before you in front of everything you do. Um, secondly, then... Obviously, the, the next place or the first place where you take that discipline, where you want that discipline to have its full effect, is in your household. Whether you're living with roommates or whether you're living with a spouse, whether you got, you're got you a, a mom and dad and you got lots of little ones around your feet, um, you, you take that into your home and you want that discipline to rub off everywhere in that home. That you're a man who pursues the Lord through his word and in prayer and you want those in your household influenced and impacted by that. Um, 
so that they sense and so that they know I need to pursue the Lord like my husband does. I, I need to have a relationship with Jesus like my daddy does. That's what you're after. You want that visible. That's where God calls you to live that out. And you do that there. And so then, as you are a man who's pursuing the Lord um, in his word for your heart's sake, and you're doing it in your home, then as you're in the church, in ministry, whether it's in your small group or you're helping out an NGM or whatever it is, you're doing setup, teardown, cleaning, uh, whatever, as you're participating in ministry, even here in your discussion groups, you're thinking, as a man who's pursuing the Lord, and as a man who's in my household trying to be what God's calling me to be, I'm going to step now into the lives of these other men, even today, and I want to bring to bear what God is doing in my life on them. I want to bring God's word to the forefront of what we're doing together. Um, you, you seek to impact the people around you in ministry with um, the kind of man that you've been and with the word of God. Um, you go to work, you have ministry to do there, you have gospel ministry to do there, you go to school, you've got gospel ministry to do there. You need to bring to bear on the world where you live that kind of disciplined pursuit of the Lord. Um, you do all those things, that's what you just set in front of you, those three disciplines. You set those three things in front of you, and um, in a church, elders who are leading a church are going to, in time, see the disciplined men who are doing that, and they're going to say, that guy is somebody that cares for people well. And there's substance, there's, 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 there's depth to that man's life and his character. We should talk to him about being a deacon, being an elder. You see, elders are looking at men that way. See, what we're after at, at, at Grace Bible Church is, is to put these disciplines before your life. Yes, for your sake. You must be a godly man. You must grow in your relationship with Jesus. But we're thinking more than that too. Um, what we're thinking of is this church needs to last beyond the current set of elders it has. How's that going to happen? Is it just going to happen? You men need to be the men who are pursuing the Lord and entrusting the Lord. What's going to happen with your life? Are you going to become a qualified man? I don't know. When, when I was uh, a young man in my early 20s, I didn't know I'd be a pastor one day. I wasn't thinking that. Um, I didn't know I would become an elder one day. God started to work on my heart over time to, to move in that direction. Who knows what God's going to do with you in time? Um, whether you like it or not right now. But um, you need to set these disciplines in front of you. And the church is watching. Um, the elders are watching. And so the qualifications, that fourth discipline, we actually want to put those qualifications in front of you and say, hey, what you're doing with your heart, how you're living in your home, and how you're doing ministry actually all fit under these qualifications for elder and for deacon. So we'll be in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 8, or 1 to 7 this week. And at the next one, then Scott will take you through the deacon qualifications in verses 8 to 13. And you'll see, as you'll see today, everything about your heart and your home and the way you are with people in ministry are all summed up in those deacon qualifications and elder qualifications. And so we're going to set those before you so that you might um, consider them and actually just pray, Lord, I'm going to put my life before you. I want to be a disciplined man. I want to be a godly man. And Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, 
is what you want to do with my life. Um, and the church needs leadership that's qualified. Um, think about what, what happens in a church where, where, where there's not intentional effort put forward into men. How do elders come about? Where do you get them? Do you just go hire them from some other place? Um, the church's responsibility is to raise up men who are qualified. And so um, that's what we're focusing on. And then the last discipline, of course, is, is the hermeneutics, which at this point we haven't even really touched on. Hopefully it's been modeled for you every single time there's been anybody up here with the Bible open. Is What's the right way to interpret Scripture? At some point at the end here, we will, um, in the last two, we will talk with you about and, and lay out before you what are some rules for interpreting the Bible that help you to handle the Word of God accurately um, as someone who is careful. God wants you, us to be careful with His Word and handle it correctly. So we'll work through that together as well. And you need to be disciplined with that. Guys, that's a discipline. Did you know that? To interpret the Bible correctly actually takes discipline. Because if you're not disciplined about what you're reading, you'll do anything you want with the Bible. You can make it say anything you want it to say. But it takes self-control to say, I'm not going to make it say what I want it to say. I want it to say what God wants it to say and speak over me whatever that is. That takes self-control. That takes discipline to be able to do that. And so we'll talk about how to do that. So with all that in mind, we'll take a break and we'll go into our discussion groups. Let's come back. Let's see, it's almost 10 after. Let's get back here at 10 till. How about that? And take time at the beginning of your discussion group, or I don't care if at the end, but just make sure you save good time to pray for Scott and his mom. Okay? And And while you guys are turning to to 1 Timothy 3, I'll let you uh, see this book. Um, This is Alexander Strauch's book on... Biblical, called Biblical Eldership. It's probably the best book on uh, what it means to be an elder that's out there. Um, it's pretty, it's hefty. Uh, it's easy to read. It's a great read. Um, what he does is he takes through, uh, he goes through in part one, uh, what pastoral leadership looks like, shared leadership, male leadership, it's qualified leadership, it's servant leadership. And then he walks through many different passages uh, in the New Testament on what leadership looks like, elder leadership looks like. And then um, he uh, walks through the, the qualifications for elder in both 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. And um, it's, a, it's a book you, you should have if you're interested in what it means to be a pastor elder. This is probably the best resource that's out there. There are some others as well. If you want to know, I can um, let you look at some others that are on my shelf in the office over here. But that would be the one I would start with. I think we probably have that on the shelf um, out there. If not, you'll have to uh, get to Amazon and make it happen there. So, all right, let's, before we dig into 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's, let's pray again. Let's ask God to help us as we look at his word. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you for what it reveals about what you're thinking in regards to your son's church and how you want your son's sheep to be cared for. Pray, God, that we we would understand um, your thinking here, what you have revealed, and that, God, uh, we would uh, embrace it, that you would answer questions, that you would raise the right kinds of questions that need to be asked, and that, Lord, we would... Um, be well equipped as we look at these qualifications 
um, to understand what it is you're looking for. So God, we commit ourselves to you. We humble ourselves under you. Speak over us with your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what I'm going to do is I'm basically just going to kind of walk through those first seven verses there. In verse 1, you can see that Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. So the word that he uses uh, for this office is overseer. And there's a family of words that go together in the New Testament. Overseer is one of them. Um, The Greek word that it comes from, it literally means above seer. The the seeing one, he, uh, he sees from above. So he's an overseer, and that kind of describes what... Um, the function is of this one. Uh, then there's the word elder, um, which is used frequently. And then there's the word pastor that is used frequently. And all three of those are not three separate offices in the church, but they refer to the same person. Let me give you an example. If you go to, we saw this in Titus, but go to Titus chapter one, just turn a couple pages to the right and look at verse five. Uh, For this reason I left you in Crete, Titus, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, verse 6, if any man is above reproach in his household. (laughs) Verse 7, for the overseer. He's not all of a sudden now talking about something different. He's talking about the elder who is an overseer. Um, Go to Acts chapter 20, verse 17. I'll show you how these words are used interchangeably. It's a family of words that refer to the same men. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Paul has made his way to Miletus. He's calling for the elders of the church in Ephesus. Verse 17, from Miletus, he went to Ephesus and he called to him the elders of the church. Now drop down to verse 28. This is who he's talking to. And he says, be on guard for yourselves, elders. And for all of the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So elders are overseers. Now watch the next verb. He made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. That means to pastor. So overseers are elders who pastor. Paul uses the term pastor in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. God gave to the church pastors and teachers. Um, so you have this family of words in the new Testament. If you go back to first Timothy three, now overseer is an elder is a pastor. And so, you know, I've done this from up front on Sunday mornings before, uh, do it again. Um, you know, we have right now seven (coughs) elders. Um, how many overseers do we have in our church? This is seven, not seven. We have seven. How many pastors do we have at our church? Seven. How many senior pastors do we have? Seven. They're all, we don't have senior pastors. We're all the same because that's the way the New Testament spells them out is we are all pastor, elder, um, overseers. Okay. And notice what he says next. It is a fine work he desires to do. Guys, um, eldering, overseeing is work. It is. It's an office, but it's work. It involves a task, and primarily it involves the task of shepherding, primarily. Uh, Overseeing the flock of God, caring for others as they grow toward Christ and Christ's likeness, and to help them stay away from sin and from wrong doctrine. 
And Paul says that is a fine work to do or an excellent work. It means it's worthwhile. It's a worthwhile work. It's a noble work. It is a good work. Um, What is more precious to God than the church his son shed his blood for? Um, And so caring for those sheep is a fine work to do. It is an excellent work, a worthwhile, a good work to do. Um, that work, I think, is spelled out more clearly in in First Timothy. Uh, in, I'm sorry, in Titus chapter one, verse nine, um, where Paul says, you know, the elder must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's what that work looks like a lot. Um, and I want you to notice two important words in verse one. Also, the word aspires to, and desires. So Paul acknowledges that men in the church will actually experience a desire or an aspiration for the, for the office of eldering. Um, what though, what if all that chapter three said in the section was verse one? In other words, verse one says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires. Verse 14, I'm writing these things to you so that um, in case I'm delayed, uh, so that you know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. What if all he said was desire and aspiration? Then the church would just have to base their selection of elders on the basis of a man's desire. Well, I desire to be an elder. Well, that's a fine thing you desire, so come on board. (laughs) Right? But Paul provides six more verses to help the church understand what true Holy Spirit-given desire and aspiration for the office of overseer looks like. So, guys, the Holy Spirit will indeed give to men in the church the desire to shepherd the flock, but that same Spirit is the one that wrote through Paul what the qualifications to look for in a man who have has the desire. Uh, you need to be looking for those. So desire is very, very important. Guys, you, you would not want a man to shepherd the flock who doesn't really desire to. I'll do it. I don't really want to. You don't want that. But guys, desire is not everything either. Um, desire must have accompanying it moral character qualification. So a man's desire, another way to say it then is a man's desire for the office is actually tested against his character. Does that make sense? Desire is affirmed by the man's character. The word aspires means to strive for or desire. Let me show you one other place it's used in this letter. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Watch this. This shows you how strong of a word it means, how, how strong the aspiration is. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, right here, by longing for it, aspiring for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So the the word aspire to is one of those that its context determines its meaning. If it's a good aspiration or the context determines if it's a bad aspiration. Um, And so either way, though, it's a word that has a strong, it means strong desire. So if any man has a strong desire for the office of overseer, that is a fine work he he desires towards. Um, 
And the word desires means just to long for their synonyms. So these are strong terms. Um, so when you think of the Holy Spirit making men overseers of the church, you shouldn't, which is what Acts twenty twenty eight says, right? That the Holy Spirit made you overseers. You shouldn't be surprised that the desire within those men would actually be really strong, passionate desires. Okay? All right, so now verse 2 then. An overseer who has desire must be above reproach. Um, must be above reproach. That is the uh, what we refer to as like the banner or the umbrella qualification that is over all of the other ones. In other words, uh, the way to measure this qualification of being above reproach is through the specifics of each one that follows underneath. The word above reproach means to be free from any offense or disgraceful blight of character or conduct uh, that is especially described in verses 2 to 7. To be able to be accused of it in a way that would disqualify a man. Um, The accusation can't stick to the man. It's not perfection. Okay, by being above reproach does not mean that the only one who's qualified to be an elder is Jesus. Because there's no accusation that will ever stick against him. Listen, there will be accusations that stick on elders. But not every accusation that sticks is one that disqualifies. In other words, um, somebody walks by an elder uh, and he is talking to his kids. And it's right out here on a Sunday. And... um, as the guy walks by, he hears the elder talking to his son, daughter, with anger. And it's clear, he's an angry man right now. That church member can come to that elder and say, you know, it sounded to me like you were an angry man. And that accusation might stick. Does that mean that the man is not qualified to be an elder? No, above reproach means... It doesn't stick in a manner in which it disqualifies him. There is no man anywhere on the planet, ever, who will not ever have an accusation stick against him. Now, if you walk by a man and he has committed adultery, that accusation sticks in a way that disqualifies him, and it it just takes one, right? So not all accusations are, are equal in weight, um, all sin is very serious, and an elder needs to address that anger in his heart, needs to repent of it, and take care of it, um, because it can become something that would disqualify him. Do you understand? So, uh, what does it mean? It doesn't to be above reproach. When it means that an accusation doesn't stick, it doesn't mean that he is perfect, but it does mean that he is exemplary in his character. Um, in his character. Um, That's the difference between the elder and really the rest of the believers in the body. All of the believers, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, uh, back up to verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, Paul writes to the church, so that you believers will prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Listen to that. Blameless, Innocent and above reproach. Who's he writing that to? Y'all. All of us. Believers in Jesus Christ are to be above reproach. So then, in what sense, if all of us are to be above reproach, is an elder supposed to be above reproach? We all are supposed to be. So in what sense is an elder above reproach? He is an example of above reproachness 
for the rest of the above reproach ones. The above reproach ones who are aspiring to be that way before the Lord can look to an elder and say, that's, what I, that's how I want to do it. So it doesn't mean that he has no sin that will ever stick to him. It means that the way that he's going about his living beyond accusation is exemplary for the rest. Okay. Um, one writer says, it is critically important for an elder to be above reproach because everyone in the body will at least assume two things once he's made an elder. Number one, that he is an example to follow. So it's really important that he be above reproach. And number two, that he will receive the benefit of the doubt against uncorroborated accusations of wrongdoing. The, the first thing that, that most people in the body will say when they hear something about an elder is, no, not him. Not, uh-uh. And that's why it's really important for the man to be above reproach. Because he will get the benefit of the doubt quickly um, from the body. A few things are worse for a church, uh, this commentator says, than having a man who lacks good character be able to set a bad example while also being shielded by the generosity of judgment that comes with the office. That's sobering. So the elder's above criticism. The way that he lives is out of reach of criticism that would disqualify him. He's a man marred by no disgrace. Let me ask you this question as you think about this. This is really important. Um, What determines... Not what... Who determines if a man is above reproach? Have you ever thought about that? Who determines if a man is above reproach? Who determines if a man is any of these qualifications? Does the man himself determine it? I'm above reproach. So y'all just need to accept that. How's that sound? do it that way right so if a, if a and listen a man may believe that he's above approach and not be a jerk about it right I mean you can believe that you're not a lover of money you can believe that you are a peaceable man um, if he believes he's above approach that's not all that is needed though this qualification along with all the others actually guys rests in the eyes of the beholders did you know that um a man can believe that he is above reproach all day long, but if his wife doesn't think he is, guess what? He's just not. You, you can't put a man before the church as an elder and say, he's above reproach when the wife is going, uh-huh. You haven't seen what I see. Or his kids say the same. Scott, yeah. At the same time, if, if you're shepherding your heart well, won't you be almost your worst critic? Yeah, you should be. Uh, you should be the, probably one of the last ones to come along to say, okay, I'm qualified. But um, it, it, it doesn't automatically, what, what, what I'm trying to address here is there are some men that come along in a church and they say, I'm qualified to do this. Well, I'm sorry, but no, not one man on the board got on the board because he believed he was. Your, your qualification rests in the eyes of the beholders. And there's a lot of beholders. There's two different layers of beholders that work together. There's the eyes of the other elders. And they are the ones who assess from Scripture and through knowing the man that it, it, it appears to us that you are. And church family, 
here's a man that we believe appears from our perception to be above reproach. What do you say? And all of the perceptions put together say, we agree. We believe he is. Or no, we don't believe he is. And so we don't put him in the office. And so the point is, what you think about yourself really is not the determiner for if you're qualified. Um, You might believe that you are some of these things, and you might humbly believe so by God's grace in in your life. But that doesn't mean you are an an elder. You're not until uh, um, the men decide and the church decides that you are. So qualification rests in the eyes of the beholder. And, And a good thing to work through for guys who really want to be an elder someday is just what do you think what do you think about this god set it up this way he could have put a mark on your forehead big old e is that the right direction i'm bringing it back (laughs) e on your forehead and everybody could see it go oh well that guy's gonna be an elder i I see that mark really coming in clearly um he could have just done it that way but the way that he did it was through the perceptions of others are people's perceptions of you completely accurate so what is God doing? He allows the imperfect, incomplete perceptions of people around a man to say, I believe he is. And you have to be okay with, that's the way God chose to work this out. I think it's actually really freeing. Because it just I have to entrust myself to God through this imperfect lot that I'm a part of. And if they believe that I'm an elder, great. And if they believe I'm not an elder... I can tell you that's what God determines. So um, God's desire is to work through the perceptions of others to confirm the qualification of a man. Um, hey, Scott. Yeah. How would you respond to someone that says that doing that, you're creating a culture of maybe being inauthentic because you want perception of you to be a certain way, maybe that's not true. Does that make yeah. sense? Um, in other words, so you're just trying to, like maybe through the fear of man, just trying to present yourself a certain way to get noticed. Yeah, or because if everyone has to be in these, you know, fit these qualifications, then maybe that's the culture then of the church would be people aren't going to be realistic about their sin because they don't want other people to see that they're not being used. Yeah, you have to, you have to work really hard against that. Um, and that's why if you turn over to 1 Timothy 5, here's Paul's exhortation to Timothy at the church. And he, by the way, 1 Timothy is written from Paul to Timothy, and Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus as he continues to travel on through Macedonia. Um, And so these are instructions to Timothy as he is helping to come alongside the elders there and and lead the church. Look what he says in chapter 5, verse 22. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily, and thereby share uh, responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin on this. Uh, you, you take your time. Time is only everybody's friend when it comes to laying hands on a man for elder. So you just want a lot of time. And, and um, that helps because you'll men who are aspiring for something, maybe from an impure motives, they don't have a lot of time. They want something and they don't want it 10 years from now, five years from now. They want it sooner than later. And um, so that's why it's painfully slow. I mean, and, and we've actually, it, it, with some men in the church, we've actually really had to shepherd them and help them that 
I know this is slow. Um, I know this is hard. Um, but, but that's not, you know, let, let's, let's work through the slowness of the process rightly rather than trying to rush it. Just because eventually, you know, if there's something that needs to come out, it will. And look, this is not a um, this is not uh, this is not foolproof in the sense from our perspective and our implication or application of it in the church. I mean, this this is not the foolproof way to never have an elder who's not qualified. Um, but this is what God has given to us uh, to operate by and uh, is trustworthy. Um, and you need to foster a culture of just sincerity. What I am is what I'm putting forth to you. Um, now he digs in, in verse 2. He must be above, uh, the husband of one wife. Uh, by the way, in both lists, 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, that's the first one on both lists. So Paul's writing two different places, but it's the first thing on his mind in both places for an elder. Um, and this was a problem and a concern among the early church the believers all came out of a very heavy pagan life where sexual immorality was rampant. And so the elder had to be a man who stood out in stark contrast um, in order for him to be exemplary for the rest of the believers. Paul's way of saying it, the husband of one wife means a one woman man. Um, that description is, is uh, about much, much more than how many wives he has. It's not merely, hey, count up his wives. How, that guy wants to be an elder. Count how many wives he has. Let me see. Uh, one. Hey, he's qualified. He's a husband of one wife. It's not that. That's not the issue. Does this rule out polygamy? Yes. yes. And actually, you go into some tribal areas with the gospel, and that will be one of the things that you will have to deal with. This man came to Christ, and he has four wives. What does he do? I'll tell you what, you need to be well-equipped if you're going to be a missionary in those settings. Now, who's going to be qualified to lead as an elder? You're going to have to really work through those things. So this is, in some settings, it's very clarifying. But that's not what Paul is, was dealing with across the Roman Empire um, for the most part. If, uh, if you look over at chapter 5, verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list that is a list that the church should care for. It's to be put on the list... If she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, a one man woman, count up how many husbands she's had. How many did she have? One. Then she can be a widow if she's over 60. Um, that's supported by the church. That's not the point. The point is purity in marriage. That's the point is purity in marriage. The man's sexual moral life has been devoted to and committed to only one woman that's the kind of pure man that he's been. A single man can and must also be a one-woman man. He just doesn't know who that one woman is yet. Um, but when God, if he, God does reveal that one woman, uh, the way that he goes through his relationship with her prior to marriage and then into marriage uh, indicates that he was a one-woman man the whole way. He was pure. Um, this man is to be completely satisfied to romance and to be emotionally attached and sexually given to only one woman, and it's his wife. If the man is not married, he's controlling himself by God's grace to love someday that one woman who will be his wife. And Gentiles in the first century would have found this qualification to be utterly repugnant. 
Um, and even the Jews, who had the easiest terms for divorce, would have found this to be unreasonable. You could divorce your wife because she burnt the toast. Um, now, how, guys, how can you cultivate this kind of sexual purity and loyalty to your wife within? Can I give you a few things to think about here? Number one, feed your heart and your mind with God's will for sexual purity and pleasure. In other words, there's only one context where that is allowable for a man, and it's the context of marriage. So tell yourself that over and over. God <laughs> wants me to experience sexual relationship in the context of marriage only, no place else. You have to preach that truth to yourself over and over and over and over again because when your internet is on and the ad is over there, you have to tell yourself that's outside the bounds. I will not go there. It's only here that God has defined it for me. Meditate on those kinds of texts that say that Embrace wholeheartedly God's will. Don't mostly tolerate it. Secondly then, fight at the level of your desires and your passions and your lusts. Guys, fight there inwardly. Think about this with me. If a man says yes to immoral lusts over and over and over, what is he going to do when the temptress is before him actually? You, you can't, let me put it this way, you can't expect that you'll say no to her if you've been saying yes to every lust and passion in your heart. This is where, guys, um, pornography is such a snare because it has trained you in your heart and in your lusts to say yes to all of those women. What makes you think if she stands before you one day that you'll be able to say no? So you have to fight first and most and often at the desire level in your heart. You have to. If you can say no there, you'll have hope that you'll be able to say no when she's standing before you. Okay. Um, thirdly, put distance between you and sexual enticement that's outside of marriage. Uh, that's for Proverbs chapter 7 and the first few chapters of Proverbs are really helpful. Uh, do not go take the way that goes by her house. Just stay away. Go as far away from it as you can. Um, I was thinking about this. Even this morning, I was looking at some um, Twitter um, feeds. And I was looking at one of a, of a person who does a Christian talk radio show. I clicked on the link to go to the article. And every ad on the right was for news that is not news. It's a step away from pornography. And I'm thinking, I, I don't even want to link to news like that because I'm leading Christians to this news site that puts all of this advertisement on the side. Um, just So I probably just need to not go to that website. Or before I click on a link, go, wait a minute. Am I... I need to be ready for what's going to pop up next. Keep distance between you and sexual desire and expression that's outside of marriage. Fourthly, this is obvious, flee, run away from sexual sin. The godly man is a runner. 
Joseph. Joseph was a runner, and he was a godly man. Even when she tried to grab him, he left it behind and he ran. We are not strolling away from sexual enticement. We're not wandering, meandering away. We run. And then lastly, if you're married, pursue your wife. Study your wife. Fill your mind with her and her love. Proverbs 5.19, you satisfy yourself with her love for you. So there are some ways you can cultivate a a one-woman life. Next qualification, verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 2 is temperate. Um, Some see temperate and the next one prudent and the next one respectable as kind of tied together. We'll kind of walk through that. Um, To be temperate means you're not easily carried away spiritually into error or into false teaching. You're not easily carried away into trends and you're certainly not carried away easily into sinful behavior. It's a man who is not given over to excess. He's moderate. He's watchful so that he doesn't jump the gun quickly into error. It's more of a mental and an emotional self-control that's involved here. Um, It's it's a doctrinal self-control that rules out theological extremes. Um, The man is internally committed to truth so that he can't be easily carried away, spiritually speaking, into questionable arenas. The idea here is of self-mastery. And one way to measure your self-mastery, especially when it comes to like churchy things, um, is ask yourself, how swept up have you ever been by faddish authors and trends in the church? Oh man, you remember when that guy came on the scene and he had a spur of books that came out? I mean, do you jump on all of that and grab it? And then he was a flash in the pan or some other trend comes up. Um, Trends, things that get really a lot of attention, a lot of spark and a lot of attraction, a lot of lights on it. Elders should be like, "Uh, we'll see. With your Bible open, we'll see, right? Evaluating it through scripture, being temperate. The next one is prudent. And this is the same one uh, that is translated. I don't know why they do this, but every version does this. But in Titus chapter 1, verse 8, it's translated as sensible. So this is the word that sensible that we've looked at a lot in Titus, this word prudent. And it's very similar to temperate. It's hard to get the shade of, of real difference here. It's internal self-control. He, he rules over his impulses rather than being ruled by his impulses. The way we've talked about it in Titus is he doesn't run to the extremes in the way that he thinks. He doesn't automatically always think the worst possible case that can happen. He doesn't always run off and think that, oh, there's, this is perfect. Nothing's going wrong. There's nothing to be afraid of here. Uh, he's sensible. Um, you watch the impulses of your life. There's, there's fleshly and worldly impulses there are, um, that are sinful. There are creaturely impulses like eating and needing drink. And then there are ideological impulses, like things you think about that are theological in nature or philosophical in nature in the world. And this man is one who does not run off into the extremes in any of them. But he's prudent, he's sensible. One commentator says, How shall I ever be able to rule over others if I have not full power and command of myself? Leaders are often left for considerable periods unsupervised. 
so that they have to supervise themselves to be sure they are still people of flesh and blood with the same emotions and passions as other beings but the fruit of the spirit is self-control that's that's where an elder is exemplary in his sensible prudent living when he's alone he's watching over himself carefully next word is respectable out of those three terms temperate and prudent and respectable this is probably the one that is the external measurement and proof that the other two are present inwardly Um, respectable is perhaps what others conclude about a man who is temperate and prudent respectable means that he has characteristics or qualities that evoke admiration or delight or an expression of high regard for (coughs) from others and it probably also includes the idea of well-ordered living So it is a well-ordered, disciplined life. It's a temperate one. It's a self-controlled one, a sensible one that actually evokes respect of high regard in others. What would be the opposite of, of respectable? Obviously not respectable. Or disorderly living because the man is not controlling himself and therefore the way that he lives is just kind of reckless and that's not very respectable. Okay, Hospitable is the next one in verse 2. Uh, in the first century, to, it meant primarily to take in Christian strangers. In the first century, let's, so let's stay in the first century first before we just take our idea of hospitality today. And, uh, and they're not, It's not grossly different by any means, but I want you to understand Paul's day. In first century, it meant to take in Christian strangers. You were a lover of strangers, and primarily the strangers were Christian strangers. Not your best friends coming over to your house on a Friday night again, because every Friday night that's what you guys do. Um, that, that may be hospitable and good, and not saying don't do that, but in the first century, the meaning was rooted in actually the, the spread of the gospel. Persecution produced all kinds of exiles and refugees and even missionaries. And so the elder was to be one who gladly received those who had been scattered because of persecution. I, it, we, this is so foreign to our context. When was the last time a Christian fleeing California ran and knocked on your door and said, can we stay with you tonight? But that was the first century. We heard that you're a Christian. Can we stay with you? We don't know where we're going. And an elder was to be what? a lover of that stranger who was a Christian who was fleeing because of persecution or who was on his way to Galatia to, to evangelize. And all Christians were to be this way. You can write down Romans 12, 13. Romans 12, 13. Hebrews 13, 2. Hebrews 13, 2. And 1 Peter 4, 9. All Christians are to be hospitable, but the elder is to be exemplary in his hospitality. So, guys, your home is an important tool for the elder. This comes back to discipline, too, right? And you need to be taking care of your household in such a way that you can take a stranger into your household and it would actually be a place of refuge for them. Not a place where there's all kinds of strife going on. <coughs> okay, look, when you got toddlers, that's just, you're just dealing with that. When you got teenagers, you're just kind of dealing with that. But um, you have to be uh, taking care of your household well, right? The home for the elder is one of his favorite tools to use that helps him care for others. Um, and then verse two, he is to be able to teach. Is this a character quality? Able to teach. It, it's it's um, not a character quality. It is a skill. 
Um, so why is a skill sitting here within a list of character qualities? Well, what does that reveal to you about what God thinks about this skill? The place he put it was not over in a list with a bunch of other skills that the elder must have. Rather, this skill is embedded in a list of character qualities. What does that tell you? It tells you that God doesn't want this skill disconnected from godly living. Okay? In other words, it's not enough to have a profound knowledge of biblical truth. It's not enough to have tremendous aptitude to impart that knowledge. But the teaching elder must be godly and qualified in character. And this is why I believe that this is one of the only, well, it's the only qualification that can actually be commanded against in Scripture to the church. Can you think of the passage? Let not many of you become teachers. James 3.1 Because you incur a stricter judgment. So it's not a character quality because God would never command against a character quality. Let not many of you become respectable. No, that makes no sense. It's a skill, right? So not, don't let everybody, because there's a stricter judgment that comes with the one who communicates truth. So to be able to teach is, is, does not mean that you are able to back up the dump truck, drop the back, and just dump. It's a truth dump on people. That's not able to teach, right? Um, shepherds must be able to impart the meaning of God's word to the sheep, um, to do it in a way that brings the word of God to bear on the person's life. Titus 1.9 is a, is a good example of what that looks like. Um, remember, uh, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So you've got two different kinds of people there. You have believers who need to be exhorted in sound doctrine so that they live a godly life. And then you also have those who believe in an error and they need to, they're contradicting the truth and they need to be refuted. They need to be warned. That is a fuller expression of what it means to be able to teach. Um, that does not mean that all qualified shepherds must be able to preach from a pulpit. But it means that wherever they are, they must be able to exhort with sound doctrine and they must be able to refute those who contradict. In a home, at a lunch, over coffee, in a Sunday school class, in a small group, wherever they are, from the pulpit. Okay. How about verse 3? Okay. Yes? In a sense, though, all of us as men, especially who have families, we are to be teaching at home. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a... There's an aspect that even if we're not doing it in the body, we still have to do it in our household, correct? Yes. And, and again, this is uh, also one of those qualifications in one sense. There, there's, a, there's a formal use of it in the office, and there's the informal use of it in the body. We are to teach one another, um, and we are to uh, you know instruct our children. Um, so yes, uh, there will be elements of that that look exactly like what an elder does. You're, you're reading scripture, you're explaining the meaning of the scripture, you're exhorting, maybe you're admonishing. Um, no doubt about that. Um, so there's a level at which this takes place in the body. Um, that does not mean every man is able to teach as a shepherd. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. 
Okay, so... You should still give sound teaching at home. You absolutely. You give sound teaching in the church. Yeah. Here's, here's been, uh, uh, this is an argument from experience that I don't think, it's obviously not authoritative like scripture by any means, but here's been in my experience. There have been some men who are wonderful instructors of their children and their wives at home who could not stand in front of other people and teach them and should not yet, perhaps. Maybe there needs to be more training, more equipping. But just because you do the one and must do the one doesn't mean that you are qualified to do the other. Mm, It needs to be just like in all the the qualifications. He's a very gentle man. He's a peaceable man in his home. Doesn't mean he's ready to be a peaceable elder yet, because it has the man has to be exemplary in the character quality, and he must be exemplary in the skill that others have to do. And so there's there's a there's a, a gap that of growth that needs to be covered and. And met at some point. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Absolutely great. Um, Verse 3. Not addicted to wine. Literally, it means not alongside wine. The man who is next to wine or alcohol all the time uh, can't be an elder. Now, notice that he didn't say he can't be drunk. That's, That's a given, right? What is the instruction for the body? Do not be drunk with wine. That's, a, that's wasteful living. Do not be drunk with wine. That's, that's a given. What is said here is actually a broader category than drunkenness. It eliminates drunkenness. But to be alongside wine is, is not to necessarily be drunk. It just means you're where it is all the time. Um, it does mean that the elder can't be known as a man who is always where the booze is. He can't have a reputation as a drinker. You wouldn't want somebody to go, hey, see the wine? Oh, yeah, it's right there by the elder. <laughs> you see that man over there? Yeah, the guy with all, all the wine? Yeah, that's, that's the elder. You, you don't want that. And it doesn't even say that he's drunk. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is a broader category of evaluation and scrutiny than obviously he can't be drunk. So the command to the body is don't be drunk, Ephesians 5.18. But for the elders, the standard is higher. It's maybe not wider, it's, it's tighter. <laughs> so don't let alcohol be associated with you all the time. And it also doesn't mean abstinence. Paul's not saying abstain. So there's some kind of space between not always being alongside wine and abstinence that a qualified man can live in that space. But boy, does it require a ton of self-control. A ton of self-control. It requires a great degree of temperance and respectable behavior. Um, this quali- uh, quality, uh, this character quality is, is in all three lists. Elder in 1 Timothy 3, deacon in 1 Timothy 3, and elder in Titus 1. And that tells you something about how much of a concern that was in the first century world. Now, let's take a look at chapter 5, verse 23. Here's Paul's exhortation to Timothy. 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Um, How should we think of this? That is not a command to Timothy who's functioning pastorally, elderly. It's not a command to him to drink socially. Is that obvious? (coughs) Okay. But rather, in their day, it was something of a medicinal use um, of alcohol. 
And again, guys, much self-control is needed. And I want you to think carefully about perceptions. Um, perceptions of others. Um, you can't control how the people in the church will see, view your drinking if you're an elder. Um, I want you to imagine this. Can you imagine another man justifying his ungodly use of alcohol because he saw you drinking? He may not be able to discern as he's watching you drink. He may not be able to discern the difference between your self-controlled, temperate way of drinking and his ungodly way of drinking. But he sees you and he may actually put an equal sign between what I'm doing is what the elder's doing. So you can't control perceptions. And you just, you need to, you need to think carefully about that. Okay. Not pugnacious. Back to chapter three, verse three. He's not pugnacious. This means he's not a striker. He's not one who's ready to settle a conflict with violence or physical intimidation. Um, I think this is probably one of them that is like the first one to be like, uh, yeah, I got that down. Yeah, last time I was in a fight was eighth grade. Earlier. Okay. Um, it's difficult to imagine ever escalating to such a physical expression like this. But what is the root that supports this violent fruit? What kind of man is willing to physically become an aggressor? I want you to think about this with me. Number one, what kind of man would this be? It would be a man who's in conflict and in disagreements. A man perhaps who has sinned against, a man who's been disregarded, a man who has been ignored, and I would say, welcome to eldering. Because there's a lot of disagreement, there's a lot of conflict, there's being ignored. Um, all of that happens. So it's going to be somebody, if somebody's going to get violent, it's not the guy who's happy and at Disneyland eating cotton candy and handing out sodas. I mean, it's the guy who's in some kind of conflict going on. Secondly, it's a man then in that conflict who does not deal biblically with the conflict in his own mind and heart. Perhaps there's resentment, there's bitterness, there's Pride welling up, and he's not dealing with it. So, secondly, he's a man who's not bi dealing biblically with the conflict, with the disappointment, with the anger. He has unconfessed sin and unrepented sin regarding that. Thirdly, he's a man who has become overcome by pride because he believes he's, he's too important to be disagreed with. How dare they think this way or speak this way to me? I'm an elder. And that man is a ticking time bomb. And all of that makes a man an unstable cocktail that's going to explode someplace, somewhere, sometime. You might first from the man not see the fist being made, but you might hear a veiled threat. Kind of, <laughs> was he serious? You might hear something like that, a veiled threat coming. You might hear his voice be raised against you. He starts to yell. You may even at some point feel like he got really close to me. And I think he was trying to intimidate me. I mean, this, this is not going to be all of a sudden a guy's just really nice and calm. And then all of a sudden he just pops you one. But there's, this is going to come from, that's the fruit that Paul says, can't have that. But there's a root to be looking for all along the way. Guys, can you imagine 
um, how one, one, one expression of physical violence or intimidation would render a man disqualified. One. Can you imagine? I mean, look, you can be self-willed. You can lack temperance once, and the church will forgive you. You hit one person in the church, you're done. What sheep is going to come up to you? You know, hey, pastor, I got a question. You know, nobody's going to come near you. You're done. Um, physically intimidating or throwing a blow at someone, the sheep will never stop guarding themselves when you are around. Okay? So what, what you need to do to, to protect yourself for this one, it's like no man just all of a sudden commits adultery. There's a root that's been going a long time before you get to that fruit. And so where do you fight? You fight way back at the root. Same thing with being pugnacious, being a striker. It's not just going to happen, but you've got to come all the way back. Guys, what do you, what do, you do when you're disappointed? How do you handle disappointment? That didn't go the way I wanted at all. You know, whatever goes on in your mind next is either preparing you to make a fist or to repent and to confess, right? Um, What do you do when you're in a disagreement, when you're disagreed with? What happens when an injustice is committed against you by somebody? That's where you need to be watching in your life. Next one, gentle. Verse 3, he must be gentle. That means kind, gracious, mild, fair, tolerant, considerate, forbearing. It's a very broad kind of word. Um, Our English word gentle, when we hear gentle, we think of softness. It's very soft. Gentle is soft, right? Touch him gently, softly. That's what we mean. That's not so much what the Greek word meant. It meant more of a fairness or a moderateness. I'd like this... um, uh, what one commentator used in this. It's sweet reasonableness. It, you're a reasonable man. You're moderate. Um, it's one who can be reasoned with. The contrast to that would be somebody who is always strict in justice. There's one thing, and only one thing we're going to do, and we're going to do it immediately, and it's justice. No, hey, you know what? Let's, 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 let's be reasonable for a moment. Let's Let's wait. So rather than being strict to dispense justice at every moment, the man is gentle or the man is generous. The man is reasonable in his treatment of others. And it means that um, you're going to have to wait in this gentleness. You're going to need to allow for multiple cases to be considered. You're going to need to allow two parties to spend time talking back and forth so that you can realize what's going on because you need to be moderate. You need to be fair. You need to be gentle. A gentleman will be one who's quick to pardon, who's willing to endure the injustice in the moment, who will be able to rise above the injustice of the moment in order to measure what is before him carefully so he can be reasonable. Okay? Um, Contrast would be a man who is immediately marked by severity, a man who's rigid, a man who's exacting. He's always exacting justice at every moment all of the time. It's a guy who's always got the gun is cocked and his fingers on the trigger. That's the contrast. He's always got his finger on the trigger. He's ready to pull the trigger at any moment. And he's just waving it around. That's not gentle in the, in the first century Greek sense of what it was. Gentle was, he, he doesn't even have his hand. He's waiting. Let's, let's talk. Let's figure this thing out. What's going on? He's being reasonable. Okay. 
boy, as an elder, you don't want to have your finger on the trigger all the time. You're going to shoot a lot of people. Uh, and you'll probably shoot yourself first. Um, peaceable. Peaceable. Uncontentious is what that means. To be uncontentious. This is a man who's not looking to draw lines in the sand everywhere in order to divide believers against one another. We're going to divide now. That's not what it is. Rather, it's a man who desires actually there to be peace between all to the extent that he can. He's a man who can be made peace with. Among the elders, especially among the church body, peaceableness doesn't happen automatically. You'll find all of these. None of these just happen automatically. What happens without trying at all? Do nothing in your relationships and you'll find contention easily popping up. Disagreements easily popping up. But the elder is one who loves peace and he knows the path to peace. So he can see that where there's division and where there's disunity and he has a plan to get that on and toward peace. He's not quarrelsome. He's not looking to pick fights all the time theologically. One of the main differences between the church and the world is that we are peaceable. It's not, what's the difference between the church and the world? It's not this. We don't have disagreement. And the world does. That's ridiculous, right? We probably have more disagreements with one another. We, we're more passionate, maybe even about more things than they're passionate about. We have just as many disagreements, but what are we? What's, what, what makes us different is, is we need to be peaceable people, whereas the world is not. Guys, take a look at, just, just read some headlines. Uh, who, who's being peaceable in our society right now? Look at our nominees that are reflections of who we are as citizens. How peaceable are they with one another? I mean, they're ready to shoot the other guy or girl uh, as soon as their back's turned. And all of the followers of those nominees hate everybody else who's not them. It's a good day for us to be peaceable. And it's a good day for an elder to be peaceable. It'll stand out. Lastly, in verse 3, it's free from the love of money. If what a man loves is money, then the office of overseer will be used to advance his financial gain. Um, shepherding will be used to gain what he loves, money. Think about all the false teachers, guys, who rake in millions. What is driving them to rake in, to, to be in the ministry? Is it because they love ministry? They love money. They're greedy. And that same threat existed even in Paul's day. There were people in Paul's day, as soon as the church comes on the scene, I mean, this is the first generation of the church, and there are men who are going to use the office to get wealthy. The elders to be exemplary in, in this character issue. Um, how about verses 4 and 5? Now there's a transition from what he is to what he does in his home. Uh, from the general Everywhere character qualities that he should exemplify to specific household ability. The man is now in verses 4 and 5. He's measured primarily by how he provides leadership over his household. So this is Paul's argument from uh, in verses 4 and 5. From the lesser to the greater. This is what he says. Look at verse 4. He must be man, uh, one who manages his own household well. Keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God, which is the household of God? He says in chapter 3, verse 15. 
So this is Paul's argument from the lesser to the greatership, from his leadership over some to his leadership over many in the body, from the submission of a few in his home under his leadership to the submission of many in the church under his leadership. So let's talk about one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Guys, this is discipline too if you're a parent, if you're a dad. This is discipline too, okay? Manages. It means that he is literally standing before his family, his household. It means that he is superintending, he's overseeing in his leadership. And there's two components that are put together here in this management. One is authority, and two is nearness to the ones he is in authority over. So he understands he has been given a piece, a, a place of authority, and he must get near to the ones that he leads. Okay, so those two things. In other words, you can't have authority and then be far away from your family and expect that you'll be managing your household. The other is true as well. You can't just be near but not really want to use the authority. The two have to be put together. You have authority and you put it near to the family. Um, It's not authority absent of watchful care and it's not care that's absent of authority. Um, the man must see himself as one with authority and who must step near to his family and care from, for them from that authority. And he manages his own household well. That means he does it in an aesthetically pleasing way. Um, he does it with care. There's a beauty and there's an attractiveness to his management in his home. Um, His management is effective and it is done in such a way that it is appealing to others. It's attractive to others. It's engaging to others, right? He manages his own household well. And what is the evidence that he is managing his own household well? Well, he is keeping his children under control with all dignity. The children of a potential elder... Um, do actually need to be observed. And we, and we do this with men who have children who are becoming elders. Um, they have to be observed for how well they respond to dad. Uh, but the point of observing the children is to draw a conclusion about the man and how he manages his household, not so much the child's character per se. Is he keeping them under control? That means in submission or in line under him. The opposite would be children are not um, would be children who are leading dad around. Dad's the one who's following behind. Hey, I said not. You come back. That'd be the opposite. They're controlling him. No, when you step into this household, it's clear who is in charge and who is not. And when you step into that whole household, it's easy to tell where submission lies and where it doesn't. The children are embracing submission to authority that is in dad. And dad is embracing his authority. Guys, we're kind of in a day where authority is poo-pooed. And you can't do that where God gives you authority. Now you can be, look, the first thing without any real thought is you'll be a jerk with your authority. But you need to embrace the authority that God gives. And you need to be very humble about it. And you need to step near to the people that you serve and and you need to love them from your authority and care for them well. Um, How did Jesus do that? Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. 
I've got a yoke, and I will put it on you, and I will be the Lord, and I will be leading you. I've got authority. But come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am gentle and humble in heart. Being gentle and humble in heart does not mean he did not have authority. Oh, he had authority. You're going to be under my yoke. But I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart. He stepped very near to the ones he's saving. No doubt in their minds that he's the Lord. Also, at the same time, no doubt that he was gentle. Guys, embrace the authority that God gives to a man in his household. Be gentle. Be humble. One is not the opposite of the other or the contradiction of the other. They go together. Look at Jesus. They go together. Okay? But if a man does not know how to um, take care of his own household, manage his own household, how will he take care of the church? Verse 5. Again, that's the argument from the lesser to the greater. Um, Some questions for you to think about in this. Do I embrace authority in my home? Would, here guys, if you're married and, and you have children, it's good for you to answer the question, do I embrace authority? Yeah, you know what, I think I do. You know what, we ask your wife, honey, do you think I embrace authority in my home? And, and how do you see me embracing authority? In my home? Oh, it's a, it's a good question to ask. And it might not be one that you're ready for the answer on, but you, you probably need to hear that. Um, are you near enough to your family to see how uh, and to know how they need to be cared for from your authority? Look, guys, we all go through a series uh, seasons where sometimes you're not able to be as near to your household as you, as you want. Um, so you know you, you have to evaluate beyond seasons, and you have to look at the, the overall pattern of your life. You need to work through that with your wife carefully. Am I near enough to the household? Am I, am I managing the household the way that I need to? Or am I too disconnected? And guys, just because you're home doesn't mean you're connected, right? You can come home and just grab the remote and kick your feet up and you're present, but you're not home. Do you know what I mean? Right? Um, when you get submission from your children, do you do it with dignity? Do you do it with dignity? Because you can get, um, a man can get his children under control in a lot of different ways and it not be dignified. Right? So you can get people under your submission. The question is, how do you do it? Is it a dignified manner? Um, Would other people observing your authority in your home, would, would they describe it as appealing? He does that well. Um, Those are the kinds of things you want to be thinking about. Verse 6. He cannot be a new convert so that he will not become connected. I'm sorry, connected. Conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. By the way, look at verse 7 real quick. He must not... Uh, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Last two qualifications Paul talks about the devil. That's interesting. We'll talk about that. Not a new convert means he cannot be a beginner in the faith, a recent convert to Christ. You can imagine Paul dealing with this as he went from one city to the next and the only kind of believers there were in a frontier territory were new converts. So what did Paul do? Well, you actually see this in Galatia. Let me see if I can um, point you to this. I got to look back at Acts. 
a moment. Acts chapter 14. Okay, I'll tell you what I'm looking for, and if you can find it, you can help me, because right now I can't see it. He went back through all the cities, and he appointed elders in every church. Oh, I see it, verse 23. So Paul had gone through Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, came back through, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Aren't those all new converts? Um, Most likely what happened there is he went to the synagogues first and he preached in the synagogues. And there were, in synagogues across the Roman Empire, there were actual, genuine Yahweh believers who had not heard yet about Messiah. I may be giving you a new category. I may be opening something here that we've talked about in Acts when we were there. And if you didn't hear it, um, I may be opening a can that will be difficult. You can come talk to me afterwards. We'll talk more. But it was possible in Paul's day that there were people who believed genuinely in Yahweh, the, the, the God of the Old Testament, and who were in, had a faith that was anticipating Messiah, and they had been that way for 30 years of their life, believing in Yahweh. They just didn't know that Messiah came, because they lived in Galatia. And so Paul comes and he says, Yahweh believers, Messiah has come, his name is Jesus of Nazareth, and he tells them the whole gospel, and they say, I believe. Is that a new convert? New in the sense that their faith anticipated Messiah, and now their faith knows Messiah, but not new in the sense that they had walked with Yahweh for a long time. And so perhaps those were the people that he put in as elders right away. Perhaps. We don't know. Um, But you can't be a new convert. Um, There may be a perceived... What's the potential temptation? What happens, guys, in our culture when the football player becomes a becomes a Christian. What happens? What does the church do? Oh man, I can't believe he became a Christian. Let's get, they grab him, they bring him in, and they believe that he's got some kind of magical dust on him that nobody else has, and they want to use him. And um, what does this say here? Look back at 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. Not a new convert, so that he will not become what? They won't become puffed up will become arrogant and so fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. You don't want that that new one to think more highly of himself than he ought, um, to come in as one who is so new to Christ, but then yet be put up so high quickly in the church is actually not a helpful thing for a young believer. And the terrible potential outcome for that new uh, convert, if he becomes an elder, is this, that he will fall fall into the condemnation that is incurred by the devil. Listen, the devil fell because he thought too highly of himself. And every other fall due to pride that a man can experience actually reflects that fall of Satan. So how sad that fall of Satan in pride would be reflected by an elder who is young in the faith. Verse 7, lastly, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. So why do outsiders or unbelievers matter? Why does that matter? Here's why it matters, guys. 
Because that's where the gospel is going. It's outside the church into the community. And an elder whose ungodly behavior has actually helped harden unbelievers outside the church to the gospel, that's unacceptable. You can't have that. Think about who spends more time with an elder each week, probably outside of Smed, Josh, and me. Because we sit around each other all week a lot. Uh, but who, who take a, take a Tom said, take a Jacob Hantlow, take um, Eric Martin. Who spends the most time each week with that elder? It's not me. And it's not his fellow elders. But it's the guys at General Dynamics. It's the guys in the operating room. Um, it's the world. And so what a man truly is out there, it will come uh, to bear on uh, what goes on in the church. So even the unbeliever's perception matters about the man. And so God has intended to let there be an avenue of measurement into the elder from unbelievers around him. And then again, he brings up the devil. Listen, in Acts 20, verse 28, it says, Paul says that the Holy Spirit made you overseers. The Holy Spirit makes overseers, and the devil is trying to undo their qualification. Um, the devil understands what God is doing in the church, and it's important, and it's big, and it's the hope for the world that the gospel would come from the church, and the devil knows it. And one of the best direct ways for him to be involved is to try to take down elder leadership. He is out there setting traps in the world. Right now, the devil is setting traps in the world where you work. And if he can get you ensnared in it, that guy can't be an elder. That guy can't elder anymore. Now, you have to be careful with this because if there's an accusation against an elder from someone outside the church, you really need to discern what the accusation is because Jesus was accused of a lot of things by unbelievers. And he was crucified for things that weren't true. That doesn't mean you believe everything an unbeliever says about an elder. I hate that. He was the worst employee of my life I ever had. I can't believe it. He was a jerk. In fact, I've, I've forgotten all my employees' names, but I remember that guy. He was a jerk. Why? Because he wouldn't cheat on my taxes for me. Wear that badge all day long, right? But if it's, oh, I had to fire that guy. Why? Because he didn't, he didn't follow the law in regards to how we were to conduct business. Uh, that's not good, right? So there's your qualifications for the elders. Can I give you a, one other brief couple things, maybe a couple things to think about? Is this list exhaustive? Is, does this contain every possible character dimension that God has in mind? Is this exhaustive, this list? No. Titus has some things in it that aren't in this one, and this has some things in this list that aren't in Titus. In fact, neither of those two lists actually contain all of the things. So what are you supposed to do? Well, you start with these, you look at these, but there, you, you let other passages also come to bear and, and play in evaluating a man. First Timothy, I'm sorry, First Peter five, verses two and three talk about an elder not exercising his leadership under compulsion, but doing it willingly. So, um, you look at Second Timothy two twenty two to twenty six, uh, talking about uh, the Lord's bond servant must not be quarrelsome, but he must be gentle, able to teach kind and so forth you let other passages come to bear on the evaluation process 
it's really important that um, you're looking at the qualifications, but one of the things that we really look for in a, in a man is, does he understand what shepherding is? Um, I've been at churches where um, the men that were on the elder board were men who sat on countless corporate boards. And the church viewed them as qualified to sit on this board in the church because, I mean, look, he's, he sits on the board of all these other, he makes really important decisions and, and he comes to our church, so he should be an elder. And the, the thing that never crossed the church's mind was, but does he shepherd? Is he pastoral? Does he understand what the office, what the work is that is a fine work to do? Can he teach? That didn't cross the mind. So you, you can't just look at character. You've got to look at, does the man understand that you need to be pastoral? You need to be a shepherd. And then um, one other thought. From one church to another, um, you might have men in one church who are measured by their church as qualified to elder, and that man may not be directly transferable as an elder over to another church. Let me give you an, an, an extreme example. Let's, let's fast forward 10 years and we are in the village of Mare Roro in PNG. And there's been some believers there for five years. And they begin to um, measure elders for that church, and they set some elders up. And we have elders. Are they the, are they the same? <clears throat> no, every church is different. And I can tell you, there are some churches that I know in California where none of the guys on our church would be elders over there. And, and just because of, of maturity of where the church is at and where this church is at, maybe I should say none of us, but it wouldn't be a direct transfer. In fact, when we um, hired Smed and when they hired me, I was an elder at Camelback. And it wasn't a, oh, he's automatically an elder here because he was an elder there. We didn't think that way. We believed that we had to evaluate the men outside this church who were elders someplace else, and we needed to determine that they were elders. It's not that we didn't listen to the other church. We did. We took that into consideration, and that counted a lot. But we had to make sure that we were satisfied that they were an elder, and the body had to be satisfied that that man was an elder too. Um, so just because you're qualified as an elder in one church does not mean that you can be transferred immediately to any other church. Okay? Um, any questions? Yes, sir. Two. One is, are divorced people out? And two is, in light of you talking about a slow, deliberate process and the insinuation of elder being older, mm -hmm. assuming there's no physical abnormalities, should elders already have established families with children That's who need to track? It's a great, two great questions. Let's deal with the, the divorced one first. Um, it depends. And what it depends on is, let's say, let's say a man has been a believer for uh, 20 years, um, but 25 years ago, as an unbeliever, he was divorced in his first marriage. Um, one woman man does not mean that you can count up the number of wives he's had in his lifetime, and he's had two, so he's not qualified. What you would look for is a man who is pure in that marriage, and perhaps he has a long track record of purity in his marriage to his current wife, and he's exemplary in it. Now, not every church holds that position. That's our view. 
is that you could, uh, you, it's not an automatic ruling out. There may be something so scandalous from them that would make a, a church nervous to do that. Um, if the div- divorce happened as a believer, there would be some things to consider. One, um, what is the church's view of a biblical divorce? Do they have a category for a biblical divorce? Meaning, does the, do the elders view that adultery breaks the bond of the marriage bond? If so, did the, did the wife break the bond? Did the man break the bond? And if he is remarried, um, is that a biblical remarriage? So there's lots to think through. It's not an automatic no, but if a man has been divorced, it should be a very slow, careful evaluation before they say yes, if they do say yes. So that's how I would answer that in a short answer. Um, elder. The word elder in our mind sounds older, and it does. In Paul's day, um, the, the word elder didn't even carry with it anymore the idea that it is an older man. It, it had so become the title for an office of leadership that um, it wasn't that automatically the only people who were leaders in the church, or the, it's a borrowed term even from the synagogue, that the only leaders in the, uh, in the synagogue were all the gray-haired old, older guys who, whose kids were grown and gone. Um, so it's not, a, uh, it, it's not an office measured by age. Uh, there's lots here to measure. What's interesting is, is all of this that is there, he does talk about having children. So is it better to wait? Paul doesn't say that it, it is. He says, if you are going to consider an elder with children, here are the things you've got to think about. Um, that being said, um, having been a, a, an elder before I had kids and having been an elder all through having kids, up to a 17 down to a 14-year-old, um, I'm not afraid of time to wait on a guy. Uh, I think there would have been times in my life it might have been better just to wait. Not because I wasn't qualified, but just feeling very, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy burden to carry when you're watching your kids. And, and we talk about this. I mean, Smed, Eric Martin, Josh Kelso, we have young kids. But we talk about this a lot, that guys, my care of my children and my oversight of their children is in your hands. Or it's, in, it's in your perception. Um, if, if you have any doubts, please speak to my life because I don't want the way that I parent my kids to be an obstacle. Um, whenever I've had different seasons of challenge with any one of my kids, I have always gone to Tom immediately or to Smith or another elder. And I've said, here's what I'm going through right now. Here's what we're dealing with. Here's what I am saying Here's how Kim and I are trying to lead. Do you have, help me. What questions do you have? I want this on the table. Rather than trying to hide things or, no, nothing to see here. It's all good. Um, that's just, that's not good for the children. That's not good for the man. It's not good for the church. So if you have children, and, and look, I, I would say if you, if you were to ask me where I, I believe I am most vulnerable in my qualification. I'll be honest with you. I'm vulnerable in my qualification the most probably in my home because I still have children under my care. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're encouraged by what we see, like in our children, um, spiritually, but we're still watching. And um, I believe that that would be an area that for any one of us who have younger children, that's where the men are vulnerable. Um, and that's why we try to hold on. You just don't want a man who, he's got to be an elder. 
His aspiration and his desire for eldering is of such that it is white-knuckled. You can't take it away from him if, even if his kids go off the rails. You have to aspire to it in a way where you say, I love this office. I want to do this more than I want to do anything else, but it's up to you, man. Here's how I'm parenting my kids. Um, that's really hard to do. Uh, all that to be said, if, if there's one application from any of this, pray for your elders. And pray for the men of the church to become elders, that God would raise up men. Uh, pray for your own heart. God, it hasn't been on my radar, but maybe I'm going to start praying about this. Do you want me to be an elder someday? Um, that'd be a good thing to pray about. Why don't we pray now, and then uh, we'll dismiss you guys. If you want to stay and ask more questions, you can certainly do that. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for these men, and thank you for our time together in your word, Lord. We humble ourselves under you and give thanks for the instruction that you've given to the churches to be able to raise up elders who are qualified. Lord, it matters to you. Uh, You have not been silent on this. There's lots of instruction here, and we're thankful for it. Lord, thank you for the clarity. Give um, this church here wisdom in applying it and living by it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.